Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Alex DePrima to the podcast. Alex serves as the senior pastor of Emmanuel Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He's a two-time graduate of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and is the author of Spurgeon and the Poor, How the Gospel Compels Christian Social Concern. It's out with Reformation Heritage Books. He's also the author of Spurgeon on Pastoral Ministry, Lectures and Address from the Prince of Preachers. Alex, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. Well, thanks for having me on, Dr. Allen. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so we're recording this today, actually in the context of the Spurgeon Library, and you're here to present as a part of our annual Spurgeon Library Conference. And so I'm delighted to have you on campus, in the library, and then in particular in the studio today. Oh, absolutely. I'm excited about the conference. I was telling Dr. Chang... Uh, I'm confident my lectures will be 25% better just by the environment that I'm in. At so, least, at oh, least yeah. 25% better. The oh, Spurgeon Library lot. does that. I envy your privilege here. It is quite an august and brilliant room. Yeah, you're kind. We're very proud of it. God, now nearly 10 years ago, raised up a sweet donor to give $2.5 million to enable us to pull together the space and construct it in such a beautiful way. And again, it, it's part museum part library, and really part study, too. It's fun for me to see students in here at the desk completing homework and typing papers, and then, of course, uh, in a more focused way, those undertaking Spurgeon research. So, I think it's just wonderful. Well, you're, you're very kind. So we're going to talk about Spurgeon and the poor today and build the conversation from your recent book that I cited a moment ago. But before we get into that, give us an update on yourself, family, and your ministry there in the local church, and uh, anything else you have on your mind, Spurgeon-related by way of future writing projects. Yeah, sure. So I am pastor at Emmanuel Church in Winston-Salem, a church we planted about six years ago. And so my work is not primarily that of a scholar now, even though I, I did my doctoral work on Spurgeon, primarily the work of a pastor. And so I'm engaged in preaching the Word week by week, uh, helping to lead our elders, shepherd the flock there. These have been wonderful years for me and my family. We have three little ones. These have been fruitful years in the life of the church. The Lord has wonderfully grown the congregation numerically, spiritually, and otherwise, and um, I feel very privileged to be in the role that I'm in. I'm also very thankful with the studies I've been able to do on Charles Spurgeon on an academic level, and now some of the writing I've been able to do. It's just uh, something fun I get to do on the side to give my attention to Spurgeon and to help hold him before this current generation and to help shine a light on things that maybe have not been explored as much in his ministry, particularly in this book. It's in his benevolence ministry, his work as a kind of Christian philanthropist, his work in mercy ministry and social concern, which honestly I didn't know much about when I first became acquainted with Spurgeon as a teenager, but now trying to you know shine a light on that aspect of his ministry. And then I'm working now on a project with Dr. Chang here where we hope to pull together a team of scholars. We have about 16 or 17 contributors on board for the project, all contributing chapters primarily in Spurgeon's theology and practical ministry. So these would be uh, men like Michael Haken, Tom Nettles, Ray Rhodes, some men who've done their doctoral research on Spurgeon, like Peter Morden and others, really thrilled about that project. Look out for that. I think it's b 2025, so we're working on pulling our chapters together now for that. And then a few other smaller projects I'm working on uh, in the world of Spurgeon, but thankful that I have that aspect to my ministry as well. Oh, that's great. So what are you preaching on in your church right now? Preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. I just finished the Beatitudes decided at the encouragement of a friend to do one sermon on each beatitude, which at first seemed, you know, going at kind of a glacial pace, but I'm so glad that I did that. And um, now in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and um, love the regular exposition of the word. I feel so privileged, Dr. Allen, to get to do what I do. Mm. And, um, Praise God. God. Praise yeah. God. I love your heart. And uh, I feel the same way. 
So we're talking today about Spurgeon and the poor. And before we get into the topic in a more focused way, give us a sense as to uh, you know your first real rendezvous with Spurgeon. So you know, virtually every minister loves Spurgeon. And virtually every minister has some type of story or moment or book they read or sermon they read, some interaction, some encounter with Spurgeon that, that really drew them to him. So what is your what is your Spurgeon story? My story might be a little unique in that, I, so I grew up in South Florida, and I grew up in a 1689 Reformed Baptist church, a church that very much saw itself in the Spurgeonic legacy, Spurgeonic tradition. So in the church I grew up in, in the church bookstore, Puritan paperbacks were sold, Spurgeon's autobiography was sold, my pastors quoted Spurgeon all the time. We had two men, one who preached in the morning, one who preached at night. The minister who preached in the evening was from England, actually had all kinds of Spurgeon artifacts and things that he had collected while he was in England. Give and, me his name and number. No. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so my pastor directed me to Spurgeon even as, as a boy. I was converted when I was 10, baptized when I was 13, was captivated by Spurgeon's story throughout my teenage years. It was probably around college I started reading his sermons more seriously. But yeah, so I took in Spurgeon, you know, from a very young age. I identified with him in a lot of ways because as a teenager, I began to aspire to pastoral ministry. Obviously, nothing like Spurgeon himself preaching, you know, 600 sermons by the time he was 19 years old. But aspiring to minister at a young age, I kind of felt an affinity with him in that, having a love for the church, a love for preaching, zeal for evangelism. And so things kind of went on from there, and eventually I got to study him, you know, on a doctoral level, which was a wonderful privilege. Very good. Thanks for sharing that. So we're talking today about Spurgeon and the poor, and I guess the question is, of all the different aspects of Spurgeon's life and ministry, what drew you to dig deeply into this particular component? Yeah, so I have a number of things. I would say the first thing that led me to explore this subject in greater depth was the sheer discovery of the massive amount of energy and effort Spurgeon gave toward seeking to meet pressing social needs in London, all around the tabernacle. So by 1884, late in his ministry, uh, you have 66 benevolent institutions operating out of the tabernacle. That includes famous Stockwell Orphanage, but also subsidized housing for poor widows, ministries to prostitutes, police officers, a clothing bank, all kinds of other ministries. And growing up, I and many of my peers and the pastors I admired, we all knew Spurgeon the preacher, Spurgeon the Calvinist, Spurgeon's you know heroic stand in the downgrade controversy, but I didn't know this Spurgeon as well, the Spurgeon who spent his Christmases with his orphans. The Spurgeon who's, you know, basically organizing his home and his estate so that sort of every aspect of it is being utilized to sort of squeeze out resources and funds and things for benevolent causes all over the city. Uh, his efforts to organize his membership to help needy children all over London. That excited me, and I wanted more people to know about this, a ministry that excelled not only in word but in deed also. And then beyond that, Dr. Allen, thinking of our current context both in 2023, but also in the last hundred years of evangelical life. You would know well, I mean, evangelicals, I think, have struggled on this issue of how to wed gospel proclamation, sound conservative biblical theology with fervent social concern. Right. We are on this side of the social gospel, Walter Rauschenbusch, 1920s, 30s, 40s. Spurgeon's on the other side. And I, I found myself with all the concerns about seeking to uh, understandably play defense against, you know, woke things and social justice movement, all that kind of stuff, which I'm certainly very concerned about. I wasn't seeing much in the way of a positive sort of vision for what social engagement might look like among the poor from those who share our conservative theology. And so this is my effort to hold Spurgeon up to say, here's a guy who's well known for his conservative theology, his gospel preaching, 
He's not moving anywhere near a social gospel, but still had a ministry that thrived indeed and in care for needy people, seeking to you know, encourage his congregation to be what Titus 2.14 calls a people zealous for good works. So trying to retrieve that kind of picture for evangelicals today. Yeah, and look, you stated that very eloquently, and there are dangers all around. You mentioned Rosenbush and the social gospel, currently wokeness, wokeism. Mm. And uh, we've all seen, I think increasingly, uh, the church is growing alert to the challenges and dangers on that front. Mm. At the same time, you look at someone like Spurgeon, who just seemed to do everything right and so convictional, so doctrinally faithful, such a fervent proclaimer of the gospel, the saving message of Christ, yet did have time and energy and devote resources to the 66 different ministries. Mm -hmm. And it is altogether instructive, the entire composite. Give us a sense, as much as you can, as relates to the scale of his philanthropic work. I mean, and by that I mean, you know, obviously pastoring a major church, he was compensated well. He's preaching somewhere every day, and surely there's compensation going with a lot of that. He's writing in such a, um, you know, with such proliferation, Mm -hmm. and again, Money's moving on those fronts as well. And, and of course, at the same time, we know he, he died in a sense broke because he had given so much away. So That's give right. us a sense, as much we know, kind of how much money's moving to and fro and back and forth and where it's coming from and where it's going. Yeah. Well, so so you're absolutely right. Spurgeon does die basically broke. I mean, he has his house that he leaves to his wife and all that. But money just flowed through his hands. So he gives millions and millions of, well, what today would be millions and millions of dollars, then tens of thousands of pounds So he's giving personally to all kinds of institutions and agencies. For example, the Pastors College, which he founds in, I think, because it's formal start in 1857, he supports it entirely from his own pocket. And that's saying quite a lot. He provided practically every need for these students, even for some of them pocket money, which I imagine, Dr. Allen, you're constantly handing out pocket money to students here, Absolutely. It's how we do. It's how, how, how Baptist ministers roll. Well, but even, like I said, the organization of his own home you know, he, he loved nature. He loved flowers and trees and fields, grew up in Essex, of course, so he tries to grow gardens all around his house. And he's growing these gardens so he can clip the flowers to send them on to sick members in the hospital with, and not just sick members, but people he doesn't even know at a nearby hospital, with scripture texts appended to them and quotes from Puritans and things like that. He and Susie get 10 cows on the estate so he can milk the cows and sell the proceeds that he could support. And this is Norwood? His final home was near Norwood. Was it Helensboro House? Helensburg House? Okay, so... Can't remember what the last one was called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so so w- 10 Westwood, cows. I think it is. Westwood. Yeah, Westwood, yeah. yeah. So 10 cows on the premises. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we had uh, quite a large property. I think it was maybe 30 acres or so, something like that. So personally, quite benevolent. And then, this is something I try to get out in the book, he's trying to organize his church also to be something like that city on a hill we read about in Matthew 5, they will see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, the Lord says. That weighed on Spurgeon. He wanted the church itself to be known, not only for gospel proclamation, which they should be most known for, but also for being this sort of pulsating center for good works. And so on Sunday afternoons, for example, you talk about scale, about 4,000 members in the church by the end of the 1860s, a little over 5,000 by the end of his life in 1892. They're sending out about 1,000 members into the community every Sunday afternoon to lead Sunday schools, street missions, to go evangelizing, to go gather people together for what we might think of as kind of backyard Bible clubs or things like that. The tabernacle's open from 7 a.m. in the morning to 11 p.m. at night. All kinds of ministries and organizations meeting there, all kinds of work being done for another tabernacle. So he tried to rally his church as well on quite a significant scale to give themselves to these ministries also. 
So knowing what we know and what you so eloquently write of in your book, let's talk about the 21st century. Draw some lines from Spurgeon's life and ministry to the contemporary minister. And what lessons can we learn? How would you encourage our listeners to be thinking along these lines? Well, one thing I would say, you know, for the book itself, I'm trying to, as faithfully as I can, ask and answer the question, what did Spurgeon say? What did he do? And so we look first at his context and how he understands the Bible and the Bible applied to the church in his own day. There's many significant differences to his age and ours. He dies in 1892. Like I said already, this is pre-social gospel, at least in terms of a fully formed. Form, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's really the generation after him where that, that debate's happening. So, and it's pre-socialism, communism, Marxism, even Christian socialism is a movement emerging in the 1890s, primarily after his death. So theologically, there are debates that have been had since then that are especially relevant in how we think about this issue today. But beyond that, just think of our American context, many of those who would have been objects of benevolence and care for the church in Victorian England in 1875, let's say, are now often provided for through programs of social welfare in our own context. It's pretty to say it's not really till the late 19th century, very end of his life, that the government more and more identifying certain demographics as those who should be cared for by government aid. So that presents a difference in our context we have to wrestle through. You can't just start an orphanage tomorrow in your community. You know, their children are going to be cared for by social services and all that. But that said, like my church, for example, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, there are all kinds of needy children we can help and serve in all kinds of ways. We can adopt children. We can foster children, as some of our parents do. There's a high school across the street with students who are coming from broken families, all kinds of difficult backgrounds. They can be mentored by members of our church and tutored by them. All kinds of ministries like that. I think what Spurgeon, though, is going to want to teach us for our day and age is that good works of benevolence and kindness and mercy ministry He's going to say these are not optional for the church. They're not optional for the people of God. Rather, they're utterly vital and necessary, that we must be a people zealous for good works. We must be those who are like the Good Samaritan of Luke 10. We must be known as Christian people, as those who care for needy people, who want to help needy people, whether that leads to a larger social movement of transformation or whether or not we satisfy all the social needs of the community is not so much the point for Spurgeon. He cares about Christian witness. He wants to show forth the power of grace in the lives of Christian people as they seek to address matters of urgent need. He wants to show forth the character of God in the way that we would care for others. Christians are those who help. They're those who care for the needy. It was this way in the earliest centuries of the church. Paul and the other apostles were eager to care for the poor. They were eager to do good to all, especially, of course, the household of faith. The earliest Christians basically invented hospitals. That was our thing. Right. You know, so the infanticide walls where children were left exposed to the elements, it was Christians who were going and retrieving those infants. Whether or not we change the laws and transform the culture is not so much the issue for Spurgeon. It's are we as Christians known as universally benevolent, generous, kind, merciful toward our fellow man? And give us a sense, both for our historical awareness and for even our current ministries, like how did Spurgeon draw lines from that act, that deed, that ministry, to actual presentation or proclamation of the gospel? Yes. So he's going to see, so you and I, Dr. Allen, being good neighbors to others, being good Samaritans, loving others, being kind, benevolent, contributing resources to the relief of needy people. That's going to be downstream of us being genuinely regenerate, having the gospel preached to us, and us being saved, and we being men who have experienced the grace of God, we become gracious in our orientation toward others. But also in terms of the mission of the church, it's downstream. The main thing for Spurgeon is the preaching of the gospel and the building up of healthy churches, the fulfilling of the Great Commission. That's the big deal to Spurgeon. 
mercy ministry and social concerns takes a subordinate role to that larger aim. But it's a necessary thing. It becomes a servant to Christian witness. So, so Spurgeon, you know, kind of cheekily makes the point, a man is far more likely to hear the gospel from your lips if he knows you to be a kind and generous man. The poor are more likely to hear the gospel from us if that gospel presentation goes down with some warm soup and a cup of cold water, that kind of thing. Right. So let me, let me get you to tease that out just a touch. So let's say the food kitchen scenario, the homeless shelter, the orphanage for that matter, in, in a moment of care, let's yeah. say, yeah. Let's, let's zero in on like the food kitchen scenario. Mm-hmm. Is it like, you know, everyone's eating a meal and then Spurgeon or, you know, an elder or layman from the church is pre- actually presenting a gospel message in that context? Or is it, is it you know, more of a jagged line to where we're, we're engaging in these acts, we're trying to bless, we're trying to love, we're trying to care for, and maybe there's a direct gospel proclamation, presentation, or, or maybe it's just kind of, you know, the flavor of Christ going on these people and they're drawn back to come visit the church, et cetera. There are three things I would say. The first would be that as much as he could arrange it, he would want to connect good works of benevolence through these ministries with actual gospel proclamation. It was not hard to do that through the orphanage, the Sunday schools, the ragged schools, the street missions. He was always trying to funnel those who were in need, who were receiving aid, into various ministries of the church where they could have the gospel preached to them. He's going to think, ideally, those things are going to go together. So in a scenario where they're feeding people, they might have a man from the, the pastor's college preach. You know. The second thing to say is that he deliberately organized his ministry such that the aid was always personal. He didn't want it to be impersonal. He wanted Christians handing out whatever it was, or Christians gathering the children together, the personal contact with Christian people, whereby those individuals would be free to share their faith, provide a compelling witness in the context of that act of charity or that act of kindness. Okay, but then the third thing I would say, and this I think is worth us thinking about more in our contemporary setting. Spurgeon says, he says, time was wherever a man met a Christian, he met a friend, he met a helper. He says, to me, a Christian is a philanthropist by profession and generous by force of grace. His point was, Christians broadly, the church broadly should have this reputation. Wherever I meet a Christians, they're always so kind. They're always so gracious. They're always so eager to help. They're the ones who stop to help the distressed motorist on the side of the road. They're the ones who are flooding the adoption agencies, eager to adopt kids or to foster children or something like that. They're the ones, and and I bless God for this, Dr. Allen, Christians today are known, blessedly, for their uh, financial support of all kinds of social ministries and works like that. Well, they're the ones eager to serve in these ways so that wherever people are in the world, they may despise our Lord, they may slander us, they may say all kinds of things against the church, but what they can't deny is those Christians are virtuous and kind and benevolent. So we, that might be kind of what you're saying with the savor mm-hmm. of Christ going around, that Christians are not known to be cold and indifferent. They're known to be loving and kind and generous in their disposition toward others. So those would be, I think, a few ideas we need to throw out there that might be relevant for us today. No, it's very relevant, and I appreciate you um, bringing those to our attention. And I appreciate more broadly the work you've done here, Spurgeon and the Poor, How the Gospel Compels Christian Social Concern, out by my friend Alex DePrima. A nice foreword by Jonathan Lehman and out with. And most of our books are sold. Alex, thank you for joining me today on Preaching and Preachers. Dr. Allen, it's been a joy. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.